following is a conversation with Jane Tucson. Jane is a charity worker and has been instrumental in the creation of several charitable institutions, including Comic Relief in the UK and Igniting Change here in Melbourne. As of uh, 2020, Comic Relief has raised more than £1 billion, uh, mainly for famine relief throughout Africa. Jane was named by the Times newspaper as one of the most influential innovators of the 1990s. And in 1999, she received a CBE from Queen Elizabeth II. Despite these achievements, it is Jane's emphasis on grassroots charitable endeavours that has really defined her career. For Jane, charity must be personal, respectful and inclusive. If you like this conversation, don't forget to like and subscribe and to follow on Instagram, Spotify and Apple Podcasts. I hope you enjoyed the episode. really interesting because when you say when you use the word charity you immediately think of working giving to people and I think that my upbringing was such it was an my parents were very non-judgmental and very early on in my life I realized you get a lot more out than you put in and I used to go my mum was a doctor and I she used to go and visit the old people on horseback and we'd go with her and she'd say it's a great way to pop in on people and they wouldn't put pressure on her to stay because they knew that we were outside. And I could see how much the old people got from mum's visits, that she was just looking out and she got a lot from it as well. So, And where, and where was this as well? This was in rural Buckinghamshire, about half an hour away from Oxford. And um, so I guess the first thing I want to say is that for me, charity is about working with people and I've just got the best job in the world I've created something that I love and I never go into the office with a heavy heart I always go into the office with a skip in my step and it's because I get so much out of what I'm doing and out of the people that I'm meeting on a regular basis so back to my childhood my childhood was just such a happy one there were four children but there were always more children in the house as in you had three siblings yes And uh, the door was always open. We were self-sufficient. We had a huge vegetable garden. I was pretty bloody good with an axe because we didn't have central heating, but we had a huge open log fire. Um, And it was just a fun life. It was just fun. Everything we did was fun. Was that set up normal for the area or was that just the way uh, your parents liked to live? I think it was the way mum and dad lived and they were also gloriously happy. They had a very happy, strong marriage. Uh, and I think that made a big difference as well. And do you think that lifestyle made it very easy for you to appreciate the little things? And in that sense, does that carry on into your charitable work? Everything feels like a blessing of sorts? Well, so suppose it's the big things. I mean, you and I are in the country now and we've just been and picked Rocket for our lunch. And it's just such a simple thing, but it's such a, a lovely thing to do, isn't it? Mm. It, it brought us both joy. Mm. And then to eat it and it's so fresh and peppery. And you were talking when we were picking um, the vegetables how um, you used to be, you used to have a vegetable patch um, at your uh, parents' place and that it was, you guys were quite self-sufficient as well. Yeah, it was, it was some Brussels sprouts in winter going out, snow on the ground, um, lovely asparagus bed, which was hell to weed, but we loved it. And then constantly picking up the manure, well, the, the poos from our horses and putting them on the vegetable garden. So it's hard work. So how many animals did you have on... So it was a farm, essentially? No, it was a few acres. A few acres. But how many animals did you have? And what well, animals did you the have? Anim- the, the animals changed. So we always had a dog. We had chickens for a while. We always had ducks, mm. ducklings, which is why I can't eat duck now. Um, we had cows. I think we had chop one, and the cows went up to chop 12. Because Blue thought, that's my mum's name, she thought if we called them Chop 1 or Chop 6 or Chop 7, we wouldn't get... It would depersonalise them a bit. Depersonalise them and so when they disappeared <laughs> and arrived back in the deep freeze, we wouldn't get too upset, yeah. So do you think your parents were your main influence growing up? Good, Yeah, they were a huge influence. Mm. What were their names? Uh, Blue and Tim. Blue and Tim. And you were telling me uh, last night as well uh, that 
Tim was a uh, conscientious objector during the war, mm. and uh, but that didn't stop him putting himself, uh, in fact, in more danger than most of the soldiers had to, and that he uh, used to disarm mines. Um, so could you tell me a bit about that and um, how you think that might have impacted his life? Well, I think, it, I, mean, I mean, I didn't even know he'd won the George Cross till quite recently. He was a very private man. He never talked about the war, but obviously it had a huge impact on him. And most of his friends who were, I think they were called rendering mines safe part of the Navy. He was in HMS Vernon. Most of them died. And, uh, yeah, a very, very brave thing to do. He, we did hear one story where he was defusing a bomb and uh, at the crucial bit where he thought, uh-oh, you know, this is all over, he found a Star of David. And my brother's got that to this day. And the bravery that somebody must have shown by not only keeping that Star of David on them in the, in the um, concentration camps, but then planting it in that particular bit of the bomb. Just extraordinary. So the Jews would have been forced to um, make these bombs, uh, which I imagine would have been very dangerous work itself, and someone had so. someone yeah. had left a weight with, on it with the Star of David so that it wouldn't explode. It was just the, the Star of David. Um, and, you know, my memory's not very good, so I might have got that a little bit wrong, but I don't think so. Mm. Brave. He, he, he was a very quiet... He was quite a quiet man, but he was ferocious with his ethics and his morals. Do you know much about Alan Turing? Have you seen Have you seen the Imitation Game? No the movie. No. So Alan Turing was uh, the. I think he's meant to be the person who invented the first computer. So during oh, yeah. Yeah. Dur- during the war, um, the German decoding system was called Enigma, and it was I can't remember what the actual number is, but it was something like if you had, if you spent, it would take something like a team of ten thousand people working for five million years or something to just decode one day's worth that was how sort of sophisticated um the system was and alan turing was just this mathematical genius i think he went to oxford or cambridge and he um pretty much he solved um solved it um using the first type of computer uh, but the sort of saddest thing or most profound thing about it was they couldn't once they'd solved it they couldn't just then preempt everything that Hitler would be doing because Hitler would then know that it had been solved. Oh, so, that's right, yeah. So they had to work out statistically how many um, deaths they could prevent without giving Hitler the, um, the word. Um, and the saddest thing about it as well was Alan Turing was gay. And I think it, it was until like 1965 or something, I, they might be wrong, but until around then it was still illegal to be homosexual in, yeah. in England yeah, yeah. and um, because everything he'd done had been so top secret he was never sort of revered as the hero he was they, they estimate he saved 8 million lives and ended the war 2 years early um, and it was, it was literally like Winston Churchill having an earpiece to Hitler throughout the whole war so we probably wouldn't have won the war without him um, but it was found out that he was gay after the war and he was given the choice of either being uh, chemically castrated um, and not going to jail or going to jail and not being chemically castrated. And, but because he was so committed to his work, he chose to be chemically castrated because he didn't want to be taken away from his work. Um, and then he ended, ended up, from just a sort of obvious depression that would come from that, ended up injecting an apple with cyanide and eating the apple and killing himself. Oh, um, a horrible story. Hor- horrible, horrible story. Horrible story. But it's just sort of stories yeah. like... Um, your dad's and like that it's just sort of I don't know just like the humanity that can be found at such a large scale throughout World War II despite all the horrors always been sort of quite moving I think uh, yeah that injustice is all around us every mm. day all day do you think people are more naturally compassionate or more naturally hateful hateful like in other words are we born compassionate and have to be taught to hate or are we born hateful and have to be taught compassion I think we're born compassionate you think so yeah I do Mm. I do and I see that all day every day in my Mm. work everybody is wanting to help everybody people want to be kind 
And you don't? You don't? No, I'm just not sure. I'm just not sure. Oh. Um, it's just, I guess you see, there's so much grim stuff in the world that it's sometimes hard to know. Yeah, it is hard, absolutely. Um, yeah. I hope I hope you won't mind me asking, Jane, but um, how has having dyslexia affected your life? Because is is your dyslexia perhaps what made you initially sympathetic to people who are misunderstood and who see life differently, do you think? I mean, my... My dyslexia meant I grew up with very little confidence. I didn't pass any exams. I had to, so I, I've always had to think differently to get at it. Yeah, I don't have a, I don't know what a normal brain is. But. How would you describe it? So when you're reading, so when you're reading a sentence, what is the obstacle as far, like compared to someone who doesn't have dyslexia? It's just that the words don't sort they, of. They jumble up. So, so, so I'm a speed. I'm a speed reader, but if you're if I'm in a meeting with people and the office talk about it a lot, people will probably there's a there's a problem and people will come at it with one answer and I'll always come with a completely different answer. I'll come round the side, mm. just yeah, complete completely um, out of the box. It's quite spontaneous mm. too, and what it's given me is I have a great instinct and a great gut. And I really trust that. Mm. Mm. I kind of, and that is so helpful in my work, in my life with friends. Uh, it, it, and I really rarely get it wrong. It's interesting as well because just for the listeners as well, Jane's probably the best Scrabble player I've ever met, um, <laughs> which is so it. ironic given your dyslexia. But I think that's sort of such a great metaphor for <laughs> how people with, um, you know, what are perceived as. Uh, sort of disabilities actually not only can have a place in society but can sort of exceed um, in certain areas as well. Yeah, you can create it into an ability. I mean, but I think you'd say we've played Scrabble together uh, and I should say Jules is a close friend of my son's um, because I do look at the board differently, don't I? Yeah. I mean, I make words... You absolutely smashed me last time we played. I know, you, I make words, I'll make three words at once. You get to that annoying stage, Jane, where you start leaning <laughs> over and giving me better word suggestions than I'd even thought of myself. I love it. It infuriates some of my friends, uh, especially the really, really bright ones. Mm, mm. Yeah. Well, yeah, there you go. It sort of points to that advantages that aren't usually sort of seen as advantages. Oh, but I never felt that as a child. You always... And I think, and it's only recently in my life that I've begun to have any kind of confidence. You felt more insecure about it as a child? I, I felt, I felt, I mean, one of my teachers called it to me, you know, I felt thick. Was it even so known as a, as a thing back well, then? Well, my mum knew about it, yeah. Right. So she was really ahead of the game and very involved in, in um, the education system, mm. very passionate about it. But, you know, at times you could put a mirror up against my writing it was that bad and when I look back at it I think you know I just it was really hard for me especially the difference between B and P and still when I'm under pressure I can just because they're exact inversions of each other I think so yeah, yeah. And, and still under pressure like I don't normally do interviews because I get very nervous so my mind jumbles up mm. and I find it very difficult to answer a question question concisely but I, you found that already because I've gone completely off beam with my answers no that's what you when want when you though. started about charity I never thought that tangents I'd are good on podcasts I never <laughs> thought I'd answer in the way that I did when did you first go to Sudan because I know you did a lot of work in Sudan in the uh, 19- I should probably step back a bit and because um, I had a really happy childhood started off going to a school that had by memory only 12 children at it it was called Miss Hamilton's school mm. It was in a local village. And from there, I went to a private school in Oxford. And I was, very, I'm, I was a very good sports person, which is lucky, I think. What sports did you play? I played everything. I mean, hockey, basketball, netball. Uh, I was a really good runner. Um, long distance? Long and short. But one day, my mum came to pick me up from school. And I'd written... Uh, we, Our holidays, our family holidays were usually... Well, we always went sailing. Goodness knows how so many of us on a 38-foot sailing boat existed, but we did. But when I got back, I had to write an essay about what we'd done in the school holidays. So I wrote about, you know, what fun it was rowing up estuaries and and um, there's a river in 
Cornwall called the Helford River, where Daphne du Maurier used to live. And Who's so Daphne du Maurier? She was a very famous writer and wrote um, stories, and we would all dress up and pretend to be pirates, and it was just fun. And, and what, age, what age were you here? Probably about eight, eight, nine. No, yes, but then when I went back to school, I had to write it up, so mm. I was probably a little bit older. I must have been 12. Mm. And I wrote up the story and wrote about the oars in the bollocks as opposed to the oars in the rollocks. And I was given a detention, a really long detention. Because I thought you were taking the piss. Yeah, I didn't know what a bollock was. And um, my mum came to pick me up and she asked me what the, de- you know, why I'd been in detention. I told her and she said, we've got to get you out of the school. So I went to the local grammar school that was going, just going comprehensive. And to begin with, there were only, I think there were 12 girls to begin with. And it was just, it was an education for life. Um, Fantastic teachers, really ahead of their game and a very progressive school. And it was a huge amount of fun. And whilst I didn't, academically, I didn't exceed, succeed. Excel. Excel. Thanks, Jules. No worries. Um, Five letters. I love sport. Ten points. I (laughs) (laughs) I love sport and I loved geography and I loved English. So... I had a really good education but didn't end up with any exams. And one of the things I loved at the school, there was what was then called a remedial unit. And we introduced rabbits to the unit. I'm sure you're picking up this wind. I insisted with Jules that I did it outside uh, so it would be more comfortable. No, it's fine though. I think it's It's a bit more... A bit of natural background. Yeah, I agree. (laughs) Um, And I loved working with the remedial kids. Um, I, I guess I was probably one as well. But, but what is remedial kids who uh, struggle? Really struggled yeah. with reading and writing. But we had fun with the animals and we really connected. And so that would have been probably and your first experience um, well, I giving had, service, I guess. Although probably, as you've said, it, it doesn't feel like service. Got more out, it was the animals. Mm. But also I got, I mean, you know, from a very early age, mum used to take me to visit one of her patients who had an iron lung. And I just used to sit on the top of this iron lung. And I loved it. And the man under the iron lung obviously loved it as well mm. brought a bit of humanity into where he was um and, and a bit then, of humor. yeah and my mum had a friend who had a child with down syndrome called jimmy and i loved jimmy he was just so full of energy and positive very positive very loving my god sister's got um down syndrome actually and yeah just the most positive friendly mm. compassionate so thing. much to give yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. really good mm. And so then stayed at that school until 18? So stayed at that school, failed all my exams. Then I remember talking to my mother and she said, what do you want to do? And I said, I want to go to Oxford. And she said, well, you can do anything you want to do. And I really believe this. And I say it to my children a lot. You know, if you want something, you'll get, you can do it. Just find a way and you'll do it. So I got a job. I was a cleaner in Oxford and I secretly went into lectures and actually um, yeah and I had a tutor who then became my boyfriend but we're not going to go there today no worries um and I just had a love for English and I grew to love William Blake I love the songs of innocence and experience and it just songs of innocence your favorite William Blake yeah Mm. love them the clod and the peb I love that idea Mm. and um so I was lucky I spent I had a job as a cleaner I got a room in a mad architect, um, a mad um, sculptor's house and had a lot of fun but uh, I wasn't really at Oxford but I had a great year learning, learning more and pursuing English mm. and at that same time started working with uh, people with Down syndrome and then I, start, I started work for a charity as a secretary but that didn't last long because my typing was hopeless, my English was even worse but I realised very early on it was extraordinary working in an organisation where there wasn't, it was an organisation supporting people with Down syndrome, but there weren't any people with Down syndrome in the organisation or, or I couldn't see them anywhere or advising. And then the organisation's logo was of a little Down's baby crying. And I knew that this was, I knew it was wrong because I saw... The opposite. The absolute opposite. So... I didn't last long as a secretary, but I started putting on uh, events. And it was a time when the Not the Nine O'Clock News and the Young Ones were becoming famous. The comedy show. Yeah. And so I started working with them. 
and, 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 and it was really fun. And in everything we did, we involved the people that we worked with. And well, we made sure... Who was the funniest of the young ones in, in real life? Because I, I, I used to, to really enjoy... I, I really... I mean, I knew Rick, Rick the best. Ma- Rick yeah, yeah, he's terrific. I always liked that because I used to watch that with my dad when we were probably like 10 or 11 years old. <laughs> I just vividly remember the scene where Vivian gets the cricket bat and then smacks it into Rick Mail's behind and then it's just got the big chip coming out of it. <laughs> it's uh, sad that he's no longer with us. I know. It's really dark. When yeah. he, that was about four years ago, wasn't it? A little bit longer than that. And so many of the great ones. Mel Smith is also... I loved Mel. He was a terrific human being. Mm. And very supportive always of the work mm. that I was doing. And I think it's really important that charity can be as something seen as something that's fun. Yeah. I remember the church early on when we did quite a lot of work with the young ones. They 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 were very angry about this charity that was using swear words because the young ones say fuck a lot, so mm. do a lot of comedians. And it's like who's got any right to own charity? Mm. And they thought it, it was what, just a bit untoward or something. They yeah. were a bit snooty yeah. about it. Yeah. Mm. But yeah. they were really fun times. And, you know, early on I realised that there, there probably was quite a bit of money going where it shouldn't go in the charitable sector. So very early on we made sure that all the running costs of any organisation that I set up were covered separate to any money that we raised. And it was also really important on any products, you know, if we produced a single, which we did with Cliff and the Young Ones, for example, Living Doll, to have exactly how much of the proceeds were going to the charity. So Transparency. Mm, so does a, a big portion of... If, if someone donates uh, to any kind of charity, does a significant portion of that money go towards the administration costs? I hope so, because good administration costs... It's just, so I would always say back administration is important mm. and you need good administration, but you just need to be keep, keep everything in balance. Mm. So I know you were pretty instrumental in the starting of Comic Relief in the UK. Was your introduction to the young ones and seeing how effective comedy was within the context of charity, was that your sort of lead in to uh, working with Comic Relief and starting that, that I charity? Charity Projects, which was the first organisation I set up that was working with the comedians quite a lot. I think we'd been going for maybe three or four years before Comic Relief was birthed through Charity Projects. But also uh, I'd met and was working with Richard Curtis. Who, Who's Richard Curtis? Richard Curtis is just a... I mean, he's a, a brilliant writer. Um, he wrote... Comic writer? Yeah, Four Weddings and a Funeral. Oh, uh, right, you know, yep. He's really top of his game and Richard was very passionate about supporting people in Africa because it was the height of the famine and he was involved in charity projects and so I said well why don't we go to Africa it's really important to know what's going on on the ground why don't we go to Africa and first of all ask if they they want our support if they want us to walk alongside them and let's see whether there's some gaps that we can fill so Richard went to Ethiopia uh, with Oxfam and I went to Sudan with Save the Children Fund and to where, have a look. Where was so there were famines across multiple countries in Africa yes, in, yes, in the 1980s, yes. but Sudan was hardest hit because it had the civil war. Is that correct? Well, Sudan, Ethiopia, Eritrea, Tigray. I mean, everywhere was hit. It was awful, Jules. And so, what was it like when you first got off the plane in Sudan? Like, what was that experience like? When I first got up, I mean, it was intoxicating. The smells and the beautiful smells and incense and amazing coffee with ginger in it and beautiful people really kind people and but devastating visiting the refugee camps devastating thousands and thousands of people and lots of people dying but there was a great spirit you know people were very kind and supportive of one another and it was at that stage Ethiopians were coming into Sudan the Sudanese women would covered head to toe the Ethiopian women would come with very little on stunningly beautiful and they were welcomed with open arms very moving you know it could have been it could be any of us Mm. Mm. how well how big was the crisis in in Sudan at the time like I mean how many people starved in the famine um, and are they still sort of recovering from it today um, 
I think millions of people died, but I'm not quite sure about that. They're usually underreported in famines, aren't they? The death numbers. And today, I mean, they've just had a military coup. We know those are never good. Uh, we know the human rights abuses that happen around those. But the Sudan's a very big country, the north and the south. Um, this country with it, it, yeah, it's pretty shit there. Have you seen the movie Mr. Jones? It's about the um, famine in the Ukraine. In the, no. It's one of the most horrific things I've seen recently. There was um, this, I think he was... I couldn't watch it. I, I, yeah. it was like, when I was there, I was able to cope because I was doing something. Mm. But even now, coming back, if I see news reports, I can't watch them. And what bugs me is still we're seeing so much negativity coming out of Africa. But the African people that I met were so impressive. Mm. Mm. And it's, you know, it's it's bad just to look at people as starving, you know, yeah. but I, yeah. Mr. Mr. Jones was a, um, I can't remember what his first name was, but um, he was a, I think he was the head of, uh, can't remember which prominent British um, minister, but he was sort of in charge of like foreign affairs or he's like chief of staff kind of thing, but he was also a, he'd, um, come up as a journalist, as an investigative journalist, and there was this time in the... 19- Is it true story? Yeah, 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 it's all true. So there was this time in the 1930s when Stalin was... Because it was right after the Great Depression, so every country was going through um, sort of horrific ec- economic downturn, but um, Russia, for some reason, was just rolling in cash and no one could quite understand where they were getting this money from, given that every other country was doing so badly. And obviously with the propaganda, they were saying, you know, look, communism's working. But um, Mr. Jones uh, goes to um, uh, Ukraine um, because he hears a rumour that there's something going on in Ukraine Mm. and he gets there and he just witnesses, like, I think they lost, I'll look it up actually, but I think um, how many millions of lives they lost, how many died in Ukraine. Yeah, so three million nine hundred and forty-one thousand people died. Um, and Can you look up the African famine too. Yeah, in the eighties. Uh, and this is where I have no uh, the dyslexia. I have a very, I have a brilliant memory and an awful memory at the same time. In Ethiopia, it was estimated one million deaths. Um, oh. and, and it's really bad there at the moment in Eritrea as well. Uh, And two million died in the uh, Sudan Civil War. Um, But there's just this moment where um, Mr. Jones is walking along a path and there's just sort of people dead on the side of the road, starved to death, obviously. And there's this one person who's died and their baby is crying on the road next to them. Mm. And the sort of carts that just go down the roads and put bodies into the carts they put the adult in and then they just put the baby in because it's like the, the baby is, is going to die as well. It's this most harrowing scene I've ever seen of just this car going off and this baby screaming. And horrific, horrific. But I was reading in um, Martin Flanagan's uh, book uh, on you, which uh, for people who want to get it, it's called The Art of Pollination. Um, but that at one stage in Sudan you were officially declared dead and mm. from malaria, was it? Mm. Was it from malaria? Yeah, I had cerebral malaria and viral pneumonia at the same time. And we were in a, a camp on the Chad border and it was really grim and we weren't looking after ourselves. Just hy- hygiene-wise and... We were just, yeah, no antibiotics and it was just really tough, yeah. really hot and grim. And I got very sick and... There was an American doctor there who'd been in, in Vietnam and he gave me acupuncture. And I'm sure that that saved my life because I had that out-of-body experience. But I was very calm and I didn't fight it. And Do you remember it vividly? Yeah, I remember, vivi- I remember vividly a tunnel and being not associated with my body. But I, it was extraordinary because I wasn't scared. But then from there, I came round and they managed to... Med- I got medivaced out, which I felt I was very embarrassed about. Medicine Sans Frontier. Why embarrassed? Just because oh, you felt you were are, using the resources. Absolutely, yeah. And so I got back to Khartoum and then they were very nervous about putting me on a plane. But I remember finally arriving in London and my 
My sister and a friend met me. I went in an ambulance by memory, but I could see in their faces, they both burst into tears and I, I really had no idea how bad I looked. But when I looked in the mirror, when I could from the hospital, the Tropical Disease Hospital, I just lost, lost all my weight. I was marasmic and it took me a long while to learn how to walk again. How long? Several weeks. Sounds horrific. So then, but that was essentially your field work for comic relief, was it? Well, it wasn't. It was my research. It was researching, but I ended up staying there a couple of months and working because they needed the extra pair of hands. And then when we came back, Richard came back from Ethiopia, it was really clear that our support was needed. His experience was similar to yours. Yeah, very similar. And uh, I still, I, I wanted to make sure that we were supporting work in the UK because I'm passionate about that, passionate about young people who are, are homeless and some of the other issues. And so we set up Comic Relief and a third of the money that we raised went to the UK and two thirds went to Africa. And I have, to, well, Richard was the genius and he, would have come up with comic relief. Uh, he didn't actually come up with the red nose. We were sitting in a in a room. There were about eight of us around the table. We were saying, wouldn't it be terrific to have an emblem? And then a friend, Peter Crossing, who's a great advertising man in the UK, drew a red nose on the end of his nose. And I remember Rick Mail was there, and it was a very much a, a moment. Rick Mail was there when they came up with the. Yeah, with he the was one nose. of the team. That's amazing. Us. And how much money did you guys raise for Africa in the 1980s? millions and millions and I think now Comic Relief still exists which is terrific and raised over a billion pounds and does that still only go to or the majority of that still go to Africa or does Comic Relief pick a uh, charitable cause each each year that they no it's still very much I think it's more global now but mm. um, people apply for funding who were some of the other English comics that you um got involved with in Comic Relief and well um, people uh, Lenny Henry was very involved who's Lenny Henry was Billy Connolly you, you what's Billy, Billy Connolly, Connolly like oh very funny very amusing very compassionate uh, huge heart he's got um yeah, he's got Parkinson's, Parkinson's and now, prostate it? cancer and uh, he was a, a huge heart mm. beautiful human being mm. anyone else I'd know can we stop yeah no no just keep on seeing Sam and Charles walking past it's very Distracting. distracting. Yeah, it's okay though. I should be sitting there. No, that's all right. No. You are they, try, edit, are they you trying to distract that. you? No, 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 they're not. They're not. Is this okay? This is perfect. Oh. Crushing it. <laughs> not sure how interesting it is for people. Oh, I think people will be very interested in this, Joan. Um, um, I'll talk about one of the things that one of the things that I felt really strongly about is working with people and not giving to them. I talked about that a little bit at the beginning. But also making sure that any organisation that we support has the involvement of the people that it's there to support. And still to that day, that's really important to me. Is that because you worry that it feels almost patronising to be giving sort of charitable donations to someone rather than involving them in the endeavour to fix their lives. I think it's more than that. It's how I don't know what it's like to be measuring out how many pieces of white bread I'm going to give to my children mm. every day. I don't understand it. I don't know what it's like to live in fear. So why should you be the sole so, arbiter of what, what's exactly, done for that Exactly. So involve mm. those people. They know the changes that need to happen. I think they're the, they're the best people to come up with the answers. And it's really interesting when you... I, I can't believe that organisations aren't Involving the people experiencing the issues. So is that quite a... Is that the exception rather than the rule in most charities? I think it's changing now, but it was the exception. And also, I mean, I, I had the privilege of working with Gordon Brown in the UK and... The, the Prime Minister Gordon Brown? Well, he wasn't Prime Minister when I started mm. working with him. No, he was the Chancellor of the Exchequer. But talking to him about how important it is to involve people, if he's making policies about people, he must make sure that the policymakers are meeting those people. It seems extraordinary to me that you can, that somebody can write a policy about, for example, people who are homeless when they've never spoken to people who are homeless. It doesn't make sense. Mm. Your greatest skill, I think, is your ability to 
speak to a homeless man on the street as, com- as comfortably as you'd speak to sort of a member of your own family. Um, and you're also able to do this with you know, the wealthy elites of society. Um, but I feel like one of the most natural prejudices that we develop as people is a prejudice against other social classes. And I think it's sort of a, it's a prejudice which we find easy to, however wrong it is, we find it easy to justify in our minds because it's not nearly as um, blatantly wrong as sort of prejudice based on sex or, um, or race. Um, it's not the rule, of course, but there's obviously a certain amount of distrust between the poor in society and more affluent people. Is bringing, is bridging this divide and removing this distrust at the core of any philanthropic endeavour, do you think? That establishing that trust between people from absolutely I mean, polar opposite strata of society. We're all just made of water. Mm. You know, how dare any of us think that we're better than anyone else? Mm. Um, but it goes two ways as well. Yeah, often when I'm working with people, they will say, gosh, Jane, I had this assumption that anybody that lived in Turak uh, wouldn't be open or wouldn't be curious about somebody like me. And then you can flip that as well. Mm. And the people that we work with, it's such a privilege working with all the people we work with because there's, there's so much curiosity amongst both groups. So what we do now is we just create a bridge so unlikely people can meet we call it igniting change by combining extraordinary lives and it's really fun when you do that and how is igniting change your current charitable organization how is that different to the kind of work that you uh, did previously it just has more of that emphasis on connectivity as opposed to just dishing out cash no no we've never just dished out cash we've always always created it so i've created five organizations and i think they've been pretty much the same but I'm emphatic with igniting change that I don't, we don't want it to grow. So we're very small in number, but we're huge in impact. And is that where the name igniting change came from? Because that, sort of, that word ignite sort of hints at something a bit more grassroots then. Yes. Yeah. 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 Would your, but could that, is your dream for that to grow in the sense that other charities follow that model? And so it's, a, it's always a grassroots, it's small organisation, but lots more of them develop. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that um, Steph Exton, who you know as mm. well, she now works at the Mornington Peninsula Foundation. And oh, she's so there's two of them now. There's the one in Balacla- uh, Balaclava? That no, have. that's Igniting Change is where we, yep. I work. Yep. But, and Steph worked with me for a while, but she's now working at this foundation. And it's very much got the same ethos as Igniting Change and encourages people to meet the people and feel the issues. Mm. Had you always had this outlook on charitable work, do you think, or was it something that grew with igniting change? Did you feel this way when you were working in London on comic relief and stuff, that you need that grassroots? I always felt that. And it was always like I I volunteered in um, London working with people who were homeless. I felt it was really important, especially when comic relief was so successful. Um, to keep my feet on the ground and make sure that I was hearing the truth of what was going on. What are some of the current projects that Igniting Change is working on and who are some of the um, people who are inspiring you at the moment? I'm constantly inspired by the people we work with. I mean, if you take somebody like Con, who's the director of the Asylum Seeker Resource Centre, and then you take smaller organisations, our latest podcast at Igniting Change is with a man called Ian Seal who has, we've been supporting throughout COVID. He's working with people seeking asylum who also LBGTQI. Have I got that right? Dyslexic LGBTQI, yep. So they're really Plus. isolated. Yep. And these people, they're so impressive. Mm. And um, just working, we've been working with an organisation called Bridget, a new organisation who are working with um, women experience homelessness. I mean, there's so many inspiring people out there. And that's why the job is that, you know, it gives me such joy. Mm-hmm. What was the name of that um, young girl at PCYC again? Tash. Tash, yeah. yeah. That was she's such a, an inspiring story. Yeah, she's a terrific young woman. Mm, just the maturity of her. And it's sort of, I often, you know, I think sort of the best upbringing is sort of being perfectly on the border between having experiences that are <laughs> tough enough that, they teach you lessons without being so tough that they damage you permanently or beyond sort of being able to um, overcome them. And it's sort of, it's interesting. Like she just seemed like the perfect example of that, someone who had been through so much 
and shit. You, you've and had quite a tough... You've had some tough times, haven't you? Relatively, How but... do you look back on those? Do you think they've made you more resilient? Um, more... Yeah, for sure. Um, open? I was definitely sort of, until quite recently, I think, more in the sort of bitter and resentful camp from it. Um, but then I was actually having this conversation with um, uh, a friend, friend of mine and he'd been through um, some pretty uh, similar stuff as well uh, with his family. And then um, and then we were just... We were also with another mate who hadn't um, uh, necessarily been through that kind of stuff. And he was just saying, you know, oh, that's so so bad that you guys had to go through that and then me and the other mate just looked at each other like it's not really that bad though like in hindsight I mean it's bad in the comparisons killer of joy kind of thing you know if you're I mean a hundred years ago that lifestyle would have been you know the most privileged you could ask for but it's just sort of because um, everyone around you is not going through that that you think you're um, the one going through so much shit but I think um, core to our work we use the phrase meet the people feel the issues so I do, I have had such a privileged life and, you know, I've got a great marriage, got great kids. Um, I'm not sure how good a mum I was, but I think I'm probably a better friend to the boys now. Um, I'm not sure how but, good a sons they were either. <laughs> <laughs> What's good? Yeah. Well, how do you define good? But, but what I was going to say was that, you know, I cry every day, all day at work. People know it. I, I, I let my heart, I let things in mm. and I experience their pain and I think that's really important mm. and it's it's just who I am. And I remember for a while at Comic Relief, people would say to me, don't cry, you know, you're a director, you can't cry. Absolute bullshit, you know. When I hear a story of how a young man aged 10 is locked up, it breaks my heart. It would be inappropriate not it's to not, cry. Mm. It's not, it's just, but people don't cry. And I think, the, you know, there are so many human rights abuses here in Australia. There are so many injustices. Mm. It's not right. And I passionately believe that people must get out there and meet those people, feel the issues, and then work with them to find the solutions. Like you did when you came to PCYC, mm. who are a little organisation around the corner from us working with young people. Mm. It's, um, and I just, I also just think it's sort of, I mean, it's, such a, it's obviously, you know, the cliche is you know, someone else in the world has it far worse than you, but I just think there's so many. I mean, I especially, um, Ray Hungle, um, a bleeds who I had on the podcast, I think she was my second guest, and uh, she's the woman I told you about whose parents locked in the concentration camps in China. And she messaged me about uh, three months ago because um, we just sort of keep um, in frequent contact. Um, and... She was just saying how uh, she'd gone with Amnesty International uh, to Canberra to try to get at least a, a f- official statement from China on why her parents were being locked up. And they're both 70 years old, serious heart conditions. Um, and China, or well, the CCP, I shouldn't say China, but the CCP sent a, um, a reply saying that your parents are both suspected of supporting terrorist activities and they will be locked up for 14 years and these people aren't terrorists they're you know there's and there's who who even knows of that situation now how many people are in there because i mean they say a million people are locked Mm. up there and it could be far more than that but sort of having a message like that i was just like i just felt sort of a bit pathetic and getting bitter and resentful about anything that i'd been through um which but that's why it's so important to meet the people feel their issues mm. Be curious, ask questions. I mean, when we arrived here in Australia, we spent a a lot of time in Central Australia. I couldn't believe it. I cannot believe the beauty of our First Nations people. We desperately need them right now with everything that's going on in the world. They are so in touch with nature and Mother Earth and the kindness there. But for me, when I first went to a town camp in Alice Springs... I, I just could not believe it. People are still living in tin sheds that people wouldn't put their dogs in. Mm. It is not okay, and it's mm. happening on our doorstep. And we've got to. St- so one of the things again, we take people to meet the people, feel the issues. We go out to Central Australia, and you don't see. Yes, people are living in tin shacks. They don't. They have very little. From some people's way of looking, and I look and I see these absolute giants 
giants of wisdom and compassion you know true elders and we desperately need these kind of people in our lives mm. so and the same with people seeking asylum you know it, we're so lucky to have them here mm. and they're the backbone that's of, the biggest stain on our reputation I think is uh, how we treat our asylum seekers I think we've got a lot of a lot of stains and I think that if you look at uh, you know many of the young people who are homeless they're 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 not runaways. I mean, many, many of us have wanted to leave home and packed our bags but got to the end of the road and gone back. These, these kids are throwaways. What are, what are the main things them. that lead to someone going on, onto the street? Do you think is it usually like a, a, a death of a loved one? Is the main cause usually um, drug abuse, um, being cast out from society? kids that just are not wanted. Mm. And I think once you start living on the street, there's a beautiful community there too. They do, they, they look after one another. And again, it's seeing the positives. And that's why my work is so enjoyable because I get to know the people I work with. And I'll always remember a, a young woman who I, I knew when she was an ice addict. And I said, if there was one message, what would it be? What would you like me to share with people? And she said, Jane, no kid grows up wanting to be a drug addict really profound we did a little book called small ways to shape our world and we went out and we asked communities what would you like what's the one message you want us to share and a great ad agency um tbwa worked on this pro bono for us and you know the groups of people that we talked with who are homeless they said you know we might be homeless but we're not nameless mm. you know, get to know our names say good day um and if you were, uh, people seeking asylum said, well, what if you were fleeing your home, what three things would you take with you? And of course, what you need to take is your passport. <laughs> you know, but you don't think, and then you're up shit creek because mm. you don't have those things that you so desperately need. People don't mm. get the chance to think that through. Mm. It's some, um, we, I mean, for me, I find in the last couple of years, been really conscious of how uncurious people are. And it's so exciting when people are curious mm. and they ask you a question. I mean, we invariably will have meetings in our office and they, we won't be asked a question. And igniting change is quite hard to understand what we do. So it always baffles me why people don't ask, why do you do what you do or what do you do even? People think it sounds rude or something, but I've... I don't think that... I, I don't think... I don't think it is rude, that. but I think people I think, think people it sounds are just, rude. I think they're too selfish and they think about themselves. So we've done this... Um, we've done a bracelet this year that's made out of recycled, exploded landmines in Cambodia. Well, can I say... Made it? by artisans who themselves have disabilities as a result of exploded landmines. And then they've got words on them. So kindness is one word it's called a symbol of hope bracelet that kit 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 willow designed for us and then that's recycled silk that refugees have made to tie and it, it, from cambodia you said yeah I've, have you ever seen how they actually um diffuse the landmines or or get rid of them was, do you know i haven't i was watching a program I, oh, the other day amazing. so they What's have it? they have rats which are trained oh, to you, detect no, I've seen, yeah have you ever it's that's amazing and then amazing. they'll sort of cordon off yeah. the square part and then they'll be taking the rats through and I don't even think the rats explode the mine they're just trained to smell they can smell and then once they know it's there that's not exploded they yeah. get their beloved rats out of there and then and then we've done to, to marry this we've done a take note notebook and uh, we've developed again an advertising agency's done this for us McCann's they've been an amazing McCann hero and we made full use of the QR code and we made little documentaries that you can click on and find out more about some of the projects that we work with. And the documentaries are on the it links you to the Igniting Change website. Is that where the yeah, video they're, they're is? On the, yeah, yeah, that's right. Can I see that as well? And this is, you know, children's ground. We want to free our children from a history of oppression and re reconnect them to a history as old as time itself. Mm -hmm. That's our destiny. That's great. So it's a notebook. It's beautifully produced as well. Again, because we're so small at igniting change, and we really, I'll often say we have very limited skills, but we're very good at going out there and finding the best in the land. To yeah, you seem very resourceful, like you've sort of just you got this amazing network. And mm. we can't pay for it because we don't have the money. Yeah. Um, we're very lucky. So just a little bit. 
are, this is quite, we are Igniting Change, a deliberately tiny charity passionate about sparking big positive change for people who are often unseen and unheard in our communities. And it's the people that we work with inspire us to create things like this notebook Mm. where you'll learn more about First Nations people, people who are homeless, people with mental health challenges. There's a great... uh, This is Charlotte from the Mental Health Legal Centre. She says, when you're treated like you're invisible, there can be no justice. That's a pretty powerful quote. Very powerful. So there's some great stories in here and you can use it as a notebook. Mm. There was a great quote from um, when I was writing this... um, that essay on uh, the genocide in Xinjiang at the moment and uh, I was sort of trying to think look for a good quote that sort of sums up the issue and there was a Martin Luther King quote that said injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere yeah which I just thought was so powerful it's always like it's almost like this injustice is almost like this poison that can just spread and it's sort of uh. we have another phrase which is see the person not their label mm. Mm. and to do that you've got to connect with people and you've got to talk with them and share stories and that comes back to how important for us it is meet the people feel the issues involve them in everything that you do mm. another thing i found talking about sort of like we were earlier about comparison being the killer of joy um mm. i was reading the other day i can't remember what the exact numbers were but apparently there's an exact correlation between the wealth of a country and higher suicide rates so there's the lowest suicide rates are in third world countries and the highest suicide rates are in first world countries it just seems like such a weird sort of plague of our generation loneliness disconnection it's really but it's so weird because we've never been more connected than ever do you know what I mean it's like yeah well what's connected well connected to people you'd compare yourself to I guess that's the problem because if you earn I've had a few mates who have well shouldn't laugh but I've had a few mates who have gone through pretty bad bouts of depression and I always the stat I always say to them it's whenever it's related to sort of insecurity about where they are in their career or financially apparently if you earn over thirty thousand dollars a year you're in the top one percent in the world wow isn't that amazing so just to think how good every one of us has it yeah but we don't you you can't so it goes back to not comparing comparing. you can't compare because you can have everything but nothing Mm. and nothing but everything Mm. but I just more men in the context of sort of financial insecurity and stuff don't let that bog you down don't compare yourself to someone earning 100 grand a year who gives who gives a shit Um, that's sort of like the it's like the last worry you should think about it's but um, I think you know if you don't have any I mean we're working with people who are unable to buy their don't have enough money to fulfill the prescriptions of medicines that they need you know, we're, pe- we're paying people's rent to stop them from becoming homeless. Mm. You know, people, we need to be compassionate and we need to really have our eyes open in this country because mm. there are terrible things going on. And I think don't walk by someone who's homeless, just get on the same level, kneel down and say, can I get you something? Would mm. you like a cup of coffee? And whenever I've done that, it's always very humbling what people ask for. And even when I'm going into the chemist and say, can I get you something from the chemist? It will be something that's a few bucks that's there's no greed there whatsoever there was this there's this guy in the city um his uh nickname uh which he he told me this was his nickname so i don't think it was pejorative but was um turtle because he's um this guy walks around with this massive rucksack on his back and he's the nicest bloke ever um and just always so polite in the way he um, goes about you know asking for a few spare coins and i was having a conversation with him a couple of months ago and he was talking about how he just needed fifty dollars um, to get. It was the bond for. He'd finally been accepted into this government housing block, um, and he was just like, I've never seen so much joy in a man's face because he needed. It was like the last time he'd really need to be begging on the streets was because once he reached fifty dollars, he was saying he'd have his bond paid for and he could go and live in this new house. So, yeah. Wow. Do you think we'll ever see an end to poverty? But- I'd love to think that we will, but I don't think so, no. Why? Whoa, that's too big a question for me, sitting in the sun, heating up. Mm. Um, I'd lo- I mean, obviously, it's a dream 
there's a in poverty is over if you highlight over in poverty which i think is interesting what do you mean if you write out the word poverty yeah there's over, over. in it yeah yeah yeah. always looking for words and words like in mental health there's heal mm-hmm. and in aboriginal there's original mm-hmm. it's interesting um, I wonder if that comes down to how the words originally became what they were well there's a thought like these I've are the original owners and then you know the, that's interesting somehow you know a few other letters come into come into that um, although now we say first nations people mm. so is in, in, in disability there's ability yes Yep. That I feel really strongly about. Mm. Yeah. But because I was talking to this guy called Euron Brook, who's a philosopher from, uh, where is he based? I think he's based in Puerto Rico. But he was saying that the UN's sort of stand, what they have is sort of the poverty threshold, which to, still is just $1.80. If, if you're if you're below a dollar eighty, you're in yeah. what's deemed extreme poverty. Um, but apparently, in the last uh, thirty years, more than a billion people in Asia alone have been lifted above a dollar eighty. So, wouldn't you say that that's a good indication of that we can get to a place where at least people's baseline of what they can provide for themselves uh, is significantly improved? I hope so. Mm. This is where my mind gets jumbled because you've asked me. <laughs> you've asked me such a big question, and I, I can't. I have the luxury of the I'm questions in front of me, Jane. So I can't simplify it. Yeah. Um, but I do think you know the rich are getting richer. The gaps ever widening. Why is that a and problem though? Inherently, is that because well, like, because if it's, it's not a problem, but I think that inequality should be shared, mm. and I think that the people who have the money can tend to lead to exploitation as well. Mm. Because so long as the quality of life for the bottom 1% is improving, why does it matter if the top 1% are getting richer? Is it because... Because, the, because the, it's not good enough to live in a country where people no, can't of course. afford to buy their medicines. Of course, but is but the inequality itself isn't necessarily going to make the... Does it make the lives of the bottom 1% worse because the richer the rich get, the more they can... Um, exercise their influence over the bottom 1%. Too, too big a question mm. with the sun shining down on me. Mm. Do you think love, compassion and idealism are sometimes wrongly conflated with naivety? Too big a question. Well, because <laughs> I think you're Hold sort of on. the most optimistic, idealistic person I've ever met, but there's no hint of naivety in anything you say. You know everything that you're speaking about and it's... Um, it's quite, I think there quite is a, reassuring. There is a naivety because there is a, everything coming back to the beginning. My mm. instinct leads me everywhere. I mean, you've got a great knowledge and you've read very, you know, you've read. I know very little hugely, about a lot. But <laughs> I know nothing. You I know, wouldn't say I that. I can though. just, I know from my experiences rather than from reading. Mm. I experience things. That's how I, my life is led. I kind of feel like I just sort of. And probably a lot of people my age just sort of recycle information that we've learned from other people. We're from books, but we don't actually have a sense that we truly That's know the ideas that we're talking about, or that we've actually exercised the like. You know, you can talk, you can say, "Oh, democracy is a, a great thing." I'm sure it is, but it's like, do you actually understand truly why? Have yeah. you thought through the sort of philosophical ins and outs of why that's you know the greatest thing that we can have in a society? It. it, it. It, I mean, I keep on. I, I, it comes back again. I feel really excited about your generation. Excited that you're curious about what I do, for example, mm. and you haven't written it off. Oh, Jane works for charity without going a little bit deeper. Mm. And I love the fact that you've come on some of our projects to meet the people, feel the issues. That you were, for example, so inspired by Tash. You mm. see people in a different light. Curiosity is everything. Mm. By being curious and asking questions. Adam, and doing something like your friend who does the yeah, I was, just, I was just about to say, I just sort of realised how sort of similar your approach to charity and Adam's is as well. So Adam, Adam Andrews is his name, one of my best mates. He runs a men's mental health run club called Smoke and Laces. I'd encourage everyone to sort of follow them on Instagram um, and sort of check out their website. Yeah, but they're great. Yeah, really good. And Adam's grassroots, just doing gra- it. And again, that sort of he's no cost. He, he doesn't want. He doesn't want it necessarily to be something so big that it becomes depersonalised. He wants, you know, it to be um, a place where, you know, 
it's small enough that it's not small enough that you feel self-conscious being there as a, yeah. as a newbie, but it's not big enough that you feel like you don't have someone you can just sort of have a chat to about your day as well. And I think, again, it's sort of, it's not patronising in any way. Like you don't feel, what I think Adam's done so well um, with the Run Club, and it's on Tuesdays at um, uh, 6 p.m. most Tuesdays for anyone who's interested. Um, but what Adam's done so well is it's sort of, it's not, it's a, I don't know, I'm thinking of a, trying to think of a better word for it, but you know, it's a cool thing. You know, it's like, it's, you don't feel um, sort of patronized being there. You don't uh, feel like, you know, oh, woe, woe is me. You just feel like, ah, oh, I've got a cool new friendship group that I can hang out with. Um, and it's, you know, I think he's sort of just, it's amazing to see how far that charity's gone just in a year. Me and Adam, because we were, we were housemates and um, I sort of, my hobby that I picked up in lockdown was this podcast and Adam's was um, that charity. And just to sort of see how far his um, charity's grown um, that quickly has been really good. And Adam, more than anyone, is sort of just the silent helper amongst our mates. So, like, he's constantly aware of anyone who's, you know, in the dumps and, um, but, you know, never vocalises it to anyone except that individual. And I know um, that he's helped out, you know, a lot of our mates. So, yeah, it'd be great to see him get um, more involved in... PCYC and see what happens with and that And hopefully he'll come. I mean, the, the beauty of igniting changes were small. We're just, you know, we're probably a couple of hundred people. Mm. And that straddles everyone from people who are currently homeless to some of the wealthiest in mm. in Australia. And, and we're small and intimate. You know, there's no, there's no lunches or drinks or mm. we're not that kind of organisation. We, we are just trying to ignite change by combining extraordinary lives and eternally grateful for all those people around us mm. and for keeping it small. Very excited we got um, at last. Now, Keenan Mundine's flying down in a couple of weeks and he's spent longer incarcerated than he's been longer in jail than out of jail. What he's a First Nations man. Relation to Anthony Mundine? Yeah, he is. Yeah. And... Um, He's just set up an organisation called Deadly Connections, which is First Nations run. I'm so excited because he has the lived experience and he knows it and he tells it like it is. What's more of his story? Uh, more of his story by mm. the notebook. Mm -hmm. And there's a great little video Why about him and his wife, Carly. And that, um, so it's called Take Note is the name of the notebook. And yes. where, can, where can people buy that? On the Igniting Change Igniting website? Igniting Change, mm -hmm. yep, on the website. .org. .au, and for more in information on what we do mm. and why we do it, how we do it. You and Charles have done um, a lot in your life to try and leave a better world to my generation, um, but I think it's fair to say that that goal sort of collectively has not been um, achieved. Do you worry about the world mine and sort of future, future generations will have to live in? I do, but as I, I think I mentioned earlier, I feel really optimistic about this next, what the next generations. I just think they are more curious. They're 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 more political. They they want to agitate. They they won't accept the unacceptable. Mm. And certainly, a lot of young people that we're meeting uh, at the moment, I, I, I feel changes in the air. Mm. And Char Charles is, you mentioned Charles, who's my husband. Mm. Who, I mean, and Charles is also say, a former guest on the podcast as well, yeah, Charles I think he would say, we just love what we do. Mm. Mm. It's just been a privilege. Mm. I'm almost, I do worry about Mother Earth, though. She's pretty bloody angry with us, and mm. rightly so as well. Did you see Joe Biden and um, oh. uh, Boris Johnson falling asleep at the yeah. climate site? Pretty bizarre. Oh, yeah, I sort we're of going to have to work so hard to keep this very, very... I mean, it's just... Look where we are now in the country, birds singing. I can't, it's I, just so precious and beautiful. I kind of worry, though, that the energy amongst my generation, in amongst sort of a, a variety of social causes, is sort of turning a bit bitter and resentful, and there's sort of almost like a vengeful undertone to a lot of it. And I don't know, it just seems like from any disaster historically, it's always the, the sort of young bitter, resentful people who are sort of mm -hmm. the foot soldiers of terrible things. Yeah. Um, um, and that's what really worries me. Yeah. Um, but I don't know. What, what sort it, of yeah, that, issue, what yeah. issues in the world worry you the most, though? 
at the moment, climate change chief among them. I mean, climate change is huge. Mm. I just think that we can just be... People can be... be I can't, that people aren't kind. You worry that people aren't kind? But no, I just worry when you see people, the anger, you, you see the... the aggression, the... Yeah. Bitterness is, yeah. Bit, yeah. Bitterness is a bad poison at the moment. Very bad. Um, but yeah. Do you believe in a... Another big question for you, Jane. Do you believe in a higher power? I do. Don't know what it is. Mm. I can't define it, but I do. Um, well, you saw me playing bowls last night, didn't you? Mm. And I, what I call widget. Widget. Widget, because I believe you can, your mind can make things happen mm. if you're really... And my mother had this gift as well. And in fact, when I died in the Sudan, mum was on a boat, she was sailing, and she said to my father, I've got to stay awake, we've got to keep Jane alive, she's in real serious trouble. Really? Mm. True story. She said that to you when, when you got my, back to England? No, she said that to my father, and they kept awake, and then when, when I got back to England... They told you that? I heard that from her, yes. Mm. That's so interesting. I can feel it with my children sometimes, I know when something's up. I used to be so much more sceptical of things like that, but I'm just, yeah, nothing, no. I'm not really anymore. I don't know why. Do you think we could have parallel lives going on? Well, that's, that's the thing that it's... I find the strangest sort of scientific discovery or fact, whatever you want to call it, is that the majority of scientists subscribe to the multiverse theory. Yeah. And I'm just yeah. like, which means that there's an infinite amount of yous, yeah. you and me, in an infinite number of different realities doing an infinite number of different things yeah. it intrigues me it just sounds like the most yeah. outlandish thing but the fact that the most respected scientists believe this I'm like well there must be something to it yeah no I that's so weird though I'm with you uh, I've had this conversation with um, uh, my last guest actually Sheldon Solomon what I've always found so interesting especially about humans is that everything in the universe follows a uh you know, rules and patterns, predictable patterns, like so much so to the, that you can predict the future of the universe and what's going to happen in the universe. Yeah. Um, animals obey their instincts, and um, but humans are the one thing in the universe that we know of anyway that is capable of defying its instincts yeah. and sort of, you know, not taking revenge on someone. And it's it just almost seems like this cosmic power that we have and just in the vastness of space, the fact that there's this one little pocket where... Don't you reckon that's strange? Yeah. It's like, why can we, why are we the least, it's interesting that we're the least predictable thing in the universe. And it sort of gives me a sense of optimism about our ability to affect change in the universe and sort of go against what's meant to happen. But I don't know, man, nothing mm. to it. <laughs> in general, what advice would you give to young people? Oh, big question, Jules. I think again, be curious and anything's possible. Anything is possible. Be curious and anything's possible. Yep. Yep. Awesome. Ask. Ask. Listen. Listen, listen, listen. So be curious, anything's possible, listen oh. and ask. Oh dear, now you... That, you see, that's too much for me again. That's... <laughs> that's and be kind. Kindness is really Curiosity important. and kindness then. Yeah, maybe curiosity and kindness. Mm. Let's end on that. Awesome. Thanks so much, Jane. <laughs> and appreciate Thanks, your time. <laughs>